This morning, uh, we're, we're finishing up our uh, study in the book of Titus. Um, uh, we, we do have one more sermon in this series. We're going to look at uh, Paul's short letter to Philemon next week, but, um, but today we finish up Titus. But, but what I want you to do, um, if you've got your Bibles open or, or, or your Bible app pulled up on your phone, um, either flip back a page or, or scroll up just a bit. Uh, to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Um, for me, it's just one page back. Um, uh, the seminary class that I'm, that I'm currently uh, taking this fall is called Contemporary Theologies. Uh, it's, it's a class focused on theologians and uh, theological thought of the 20th century. And um, I gotta tell you, there's some, there's some great theologians that uh, that we've studied, that have made some uh, invaluable contributions to, to our thinking about God. Um, there are some others, though, that propose beliefs and, and philosophies that we really have to strongly push back against as Bible-believing followers of God. For example, there are, there are some theologians who believe that, uh, well, they believe some very unorthodox I would say even heterodox or, or heretical things about the Bible itself. Karl Barth is probably the most famous 20th century theologian. Uh, you can make a strong case he's been the most influential theologian of the 20th century, and he's got some good stuff. But, but his view on the Bible is, is really kind of a tenuous view. He, he doesn't see the Bible itself as the inerrant word of God. He would say this this is filled with errant words of humans. And then God, the, or the Bible only becomes the word of God as the Holy Spirit works in our lives. So you'd say this isn't the word of God, but it can become that as God works. Um, Emil Bruner is another, another guy, a pretty low view of the Bible. He says that the Bible is not truth. It doesn't contain truth, but again, through the Bible, we can discover truth as God speaks to us. And, you know, as, as Bible-believing evangelical Christians, those are ideas that we, we should push back against very strongly, very critically. Um, and it's because God has proclaimed that the Bible is indeed much more than simply a book of human words or, or an untrue book that can teach us about truth. For example, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God, he says here. If you were to flip forward in your Bible or, or scroll forward in your Bible just a little bit to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 is, is where we read that the word of God is living and active. It's not, a, it's not a dead book filled with dead words written some 2,000 years ago or, or even more than that for the Old Testament. Uh, it, it is a living book through which the Holy Spirit continues to reveal God's character and God's purposes to us. There are, there are some, th uh, well, there's many things that have changed over the last 2,000 years when we think about the New Testament. 
things about the world in the first century would be completely foreign to us today. That's why we can sometimes struggle to read some of the contextual things with the culture at that point. It could be so foreign. And, and likewise, I, I would think things about the world today would be very foreign to, to someone from the first century. And yet, yet, when we read the Bible, we find that it is just as relevant today as it was when the words were first penned, when God's Spirit worked through those writers. Case in point, look with me at our passage for this morning, Titus chapter 3. And tell me this isn't relevant for us. Chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Again, that's written 2,000 years ago. <laughs> that's not applicable today. I'm not sure what would be. Um, now, now, it is helpful to know some of the political context of the believers on Crete, the one to whom Paul wrote this letter, to Titus was ministering to. The island of Crete, like much of the, the known world at that time, was under the, the occupation and the rule of Rome. And, and the specific Roman emperor in power at that time would have been Nero. Emperor Nero is, is notorious for being especially brutal um, in, in his, his treatment of Christians. He, he was the one who, who as history tells us, uh, he would uh, burn Christians on poles in order to provide light for his courtyard. He was, he was the one who incited further hatred against Christians by blaming them for the great fire that, that devoured much of Rome in AD 64. And, and beyond that, the culture of the Roman Empire itself is, is well known to have been one of oppression and death. And you can see that. It's, it's evidenced by the great military might of Rome. It's evidenced by the impressive scale of the Colosseum. That was not a place of life. The Colosseum was a place of death. So it wasn't as if the people to whom Paul commanded submission were nice guys. Right? I mean, we, we, it does us well to understand a little bit of the, the Roman context there. They were generally people who were concerned with their own good. They weren't afraid to take advantage of others to make that happen. It, it, it wouldn't have taken much imagination to consider the Roman authorities to be the enemies of the church. And I think that's why you see a lot of the tension in the Gospels. Like, Jesus, come on, you know, overthrow Rome, be this military messiah. They viewed Rome as the enemy. Now, now, even though our political and our national context today is not identical to that of the Roman Empire in the first century, it doesn't mean that we are off the hook, okay? It doesn't mean we can skirt by these two verses and say, well, that was for Rome, we're in a different spot. These are two verses that, that I think require us to do some serious wrestling this morning, um, and, and not wrestling with each other, but, but wrestling with the text, wrestling with what God is speaking to us here. And when it comes to being submissive, obedient, gentle, courteous to rulers and authorities, what does that look like coming out of the current election? Right? I think that's a question we ought to ask. What, what does that look like when it comes to the different statements made by rulers and authorities pertaining to COVID? I think that's another question that we ought to ask. The, 
the last thing I want to do this morning is preach a sermon on these verses and, and do so in a superficial manner. I mean, this is the context that we're in. This, this is quite applicable to us right now. Uh, I, I don't want to just assume that I or, or the rest of us are, are truly carrying out this command in our lives. There's some hard questions that I should ask myself. I think there's hard questions we can ask ourselves, and we will. We'll get there. But before we ask and respond to those questions, I, I think it's wise to proceed through the rest of the passage and, and examine why Paul is writing those two verses, because he goes on to explain it. You know, we get to verse 3, and it starts with the word for. So we know that Paul is giving the explanation for those first two verses. So look with me at verse 3. So why did he write what he wrote? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, a slaves, uh, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So Paul's, Paul's directing us to consider our own reality apart from the work of Christ in our lives. And Paul includes himself in this as well. He's, he's not separating himself. In thinking back over his life before Christ, Paul saw himself as, as foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions. And in addition, he treated others with malice and envy and hatred. We have stories of that in the book of Acts. Now, I would imagine it took, it took no effort for the believers at this time on Crete. It probably took no effort for them to examine the Roman authorities and see the things listed in verse 3, right? I think they probably would have made that connection. In the same way, it, it maybe doesn't take much effort for us to look at certain governmental rulers and authorities and, and come up with these same things that Paul lists in verse 3. But rather than be so quick to judge the shortcomings of those in authority, Paul leads the believers to look within first, to consider their own fallen state prior to their transformation. They themselves, he says, we ourselves were once these things. They were defined by this list, and we too ought to consider our lives, our reality, prior to salvation in Christ. I think that does us well. For those of us who experienced salvation as an adult or, or even as a teenager, we're probably able to more clearly reflect on our lives before Christ because we can remember it a little more. Maybe, maybe we look at uh, some of these things listed in verse 3 and say, yeah, I, I remember, remember that, I remember kind of being defined by that. Um, for those of us who experienced salvation as a young child, it can be a little more difficult because maybe we don't have quite the, the clarity of memories because of that. Uh, that'd be the camp that I, I would fall into. Usually don't have a dramatic conversion story. We're maybe not able to definitively point to how our lives were powerfully changed, either gradually or instantly by the power of God. And yet, I think we can still reflect on the potential of what our lives would have been apart from Christ if we had not ever come to salvation in Christ. I think we can look at the temptations that we face now, the temptations that pull at us and, and that we battle today and imagine, imagine ourselves maybe giving into those temptations, being defined by those things had we not come to faith in Christ 
We can imagine those things ruling our lives. So, so whatever situation you're in, whether you can clearly see yourself prior to Christ or not, uh, it is important that we remember who we were or would have been apart from the work of Christ, apart from salvation. You know, when we consider our response to those currently living without Christ, especially to those in authority over us, we, we have to recognize the common ground that we have with them, that apart from Christ, we either were or would have been like that as well. We were once lost in our sin, slaves to our uh, various passions, uh, pleasures of the sinful nature. Whether we experience salvation as an adult or a child, that's our reality. But there's more. Paul goes on, verse four. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. There is a 180 that takes place at verse 4. Right, But God worked. God did something. In Christ, our situation has been radically changed. We've been radically transformed. And, and that has only taken place because of the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, who, who saved us out of his grace. Paul clearly reminds the believers on Crete. He reminds us reading now, we were not saved because of works done by us. We just weren't. There's nothing we've done to earn or secure salvation. We're not, we're not good enough people that, that God looked upon us and decided to show mercy because of our sincere efforts. I mean, Romans chapter 5 verse 8 clearly affirms, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, while we were steeped in sin, lost in sin, hopeless in sin, Christ died for us. Our salvation has absolutely nothing to do with our own goodness and loving kindness. On the contrary, Paul says, it is the goodness and loving kindness of God which led him to show mercy and save us. And so I think the question that, that we ought to ask ourselves is, how often do we withhold goodness and kindness from a person because we don't think they deserve it or they, or maybe they've done something that has brought us pain or difficulty. Uh, I know it can be easy for me to start thinking along those lines, begin to think that I ought to treat a person according to what I think they deserve based upon my judgment of, of the situation. How thankful I am that God did not treat me that way, did not treat me according to what my sins truly deserved. Uh, man, he instead has shown me mercy. He has richly poured out on me the regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. And I love that language there. The reason Jim read Ezekiel 36 for us is because Paul is picking up on that language that Ezekiel writes in chapter 36. Right? It's the language there. It's where God promises to cleanse his people from their uncleanness 
cleanse them from their idolatry. He promises to give them a new heart and a new spirit. He promises to remove their heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He promises to put his spirit within them. And, and again, and you kind of pick it up in that passage, that promise was not made in response to Israel's incredible obedience and faithfulness to God. I mean, that, Ezekiel starts that passage and basically God's saying, yeah, you blew it, Israel. You have, you have defamed my name, but here's what I'm going to do for you anyway. Here is the grace and the mercy that I'm going to show you. I mean, that promise is made on the heels of their rejection of God. It was a promise given in spite of their uncleanness, in spite of their idolatry. And I think it is a further reminder that just as God's people, Israel, did not deserve to receive that regeneration and renewal, so it's true for all throughout history who've ever sinned against God, which consequently is all throughout history minus the perfect Son of God. And in verse, I think verse 7 highlights kind of this incredible shift that takes place in our lives. Verse 7 begins talking about justification, and, and, and the word is one that kind of paints the picture of a courtroom scene. Uh, we are accused of committing sin against God, and indeed we are guilty of those charges. We stand condemned before the judge, yet in the midst of that guilt, in the midst of that guilt, God in his grace justifies us and pronounces us to be clean, to be righteous. And then at the end of verse 7, that scene shifts. Upon that declaration of righteousness, the scene shifts from one of a cold, fearful courtroom to one of a, a warm, loving family. We are made heirs. We are made heirs. Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We've been transformed from guilty sinner into beloved son or daughter. It's incredible what God has done within his people, with those who receive him and his gift of grace. We can't ever forget who we used to be or would have been apart from Christ. We can't forget who we are now in Christ, and we can't forget the transformation that took place from one to the other. I think if we do forget that, and it can be hard to think about our lives prior to Christ uh, sinning against him, it can be hard to think about it, but if we do forget, then it becomes much too easy to respond to rulers and authorities, for example, who are apart from Christ with a harsh and, and quarreling attitude. If we forget who we used to be, it can be so easy to respond in those ways. It becomes much too easy to speak evil about them. It becomes much too easy to withhold good from them. But again, when we reflect on our own situation, we realize we can't respond in that way to them. We can't. We can only rightly respond with the same goodness and the same kindness and the same grace and the same mercy that God has showed to us. It's, it's the only right response based on what God has done within us. And, and then look what Paul goes on to say in verse 8. He brings it out. He says, The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are excellent and profitable for people. 
And again, you know, the good works that we're called to here in verse 8, the same good works back in verse 1, they have nothing to do with earning salvation. We've, we've sufficiently covered that this morning. Rather, our good works are the necessary outcome of that transformation, which we've experienced through God's saving grace in our lives. We have to be careful, as Paul says, to devote ourselves to those good works. And that alludes to effort, doesn't it? That, that, that alludes to dedication on our part. We need to devote ourselves to them. If, if good works were always our immediate action to those who wish us harm or who we disagree with, then we wouldn't have to devote ourselves to them. They would just happen. But it doesn't work that way, does it? There, there's struggle within us. Our first inclination is not always to respond with those good works. And so we have to devote ourselves to it. We have to work at it. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Not work for your salvation, that's not it, but work out your salvation. Let it come out. Let it overflow, right? Do those good works that come from this inner transformation that God has brought within us. And, and Paul says it, it's excellent and profitable for people. It's excellent and profitable, not just for ourselves. I think it's excellent and profitable for all those around us as well. When we live out this transformation, they benefit from our willingness to show grace and show mercy and, and do the things that Paul's writing about here. And as we do that, as we live out those good works, like we talked about last week, we are quite literally living out the message of the gospel. We are taking a verbal proclamation and, and painting a picture of what that looks like. We're showing the reality of it. The, the, the good works give weight to the good news that we speak through our words. And Paul even brings up the necessity of discipline for those who refuse to live in this way. Look at verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So a, a person who would rather cause division than devote themselves to good works according to Paul, must be addressed. They're showing that they've probably not received salvation by God's grace since they refuse to live it out, since they pursue division. They're showing there's probably not been a gospel transformation that has taken place within them. And again, it's not our job to, to make the final judgment, right? But, but when we don't see those good works being lived out, we ought to... Uh, it's written uh, um, other, another place to basically treat them as an unbeliever, proclaim the gospel to them. Right? If we don't see the effects of the gospel, then we ought to proclaim the gospel, kind of assuming that they haven't truly received it. And again, it's not our judgment that's final in the matter, but we're responding to fruit that we do or don't see in that situation. And, and, and you know, as Paul says there, person must not be allowed to continue to endanger the church body by, by stirring up division. They must be removed. Right? And again, you know, treat it as an unbeliever. Proclaim the gospel to them. 
proclaim it in hopes that they will yield themselves to the gospel of God and come to salvation and be justified by God's grace and then see that poured out in their lives. The, the bottom line really is that those who've been transformed in Christ are ready for and devoted to good works. There's no other option that Paul gives us. That's how it is supposed to work. It, it's, it's the natural outflow of the goodness and kindness of God that he fills us with, that he pours out upon us, that then overflows to others. According to Paul, it's, it's just how it works. So now let's go back. Let's go back. We've gone through the passage. Um, let's go back to those first two verses, that opening statement that Paul gives about submitting to rulers and authorities, being obedient, ready for good works, not speaking evil, avoiding quarreling. I kind of brought up two situations earlier. What does that look like in terms of the election? What does that look like in terms of COVID? Um, election first. We'll tackle that one first. In submitting to governmental authorities, we have to be ready to do good works regardless of who is in the office. That, that, that's what we are called to. I know, I, I know there's still things being worked out with our current election, but it appears at this point that Joe Biden will be our president in 2021. I've, I've seen arguments that Christians have made that, that would say that we should not submit to a Biden presidency and it's usually specifically stated because of his stance on abortion. That's kind of the, the, the uh, trump card that's, that's thrown out there, right? And a comparison a lot of times is made between Biden or even Democrats in general and Hitler during the Holocaust. And, and, and I think we need to be very careful with statements and comparisons like that because when you look back at the 1930s and 40s, you know, Hitler commanded his military to forcibly detain Jews. He commanded them to forcibly relocate them to concentration camps, uh, and they were actively being killed there. And, and, and please don't hear me wrong. Every loss of life is tragic, and, and I do support legislation that would forbid the taking of the lives of unborn children. So don't hear me wrong here, but but Joe Biden, nor anyone else in politics that I know of, is actively forcing people to choose abortion. And again, I, you know, I wish that nobody could choose abortion, but no one's being forced to choose it. He's not rounding people up, taking them to abortion clinics. So, so I think we need to be careful in assuming that we have a pass on what Paul is saying here because of that. Because the argument goes, well, would you have submitted to Hitler back in World War II? And well, no, of course not. But I think we need to be careful making those two things parallel, because we're just not there, right? World War II, that was for sure an extreme situation. In my opinion, even though I don't agree with a lot of the policies of Joe Biden, we're not in an extreme situation. We're just not there as it currently stands. And so I don't think we get a pass on verses one and two. I think this ought to guide our response to Again, the rulers, authorities that have been placed over us. COVID is one that's a little more difficult for me, if I'm honest. Um, it's one that, uh, you know, that I and the elders have, you know, we, we've kind of been working through amidst this whole situation, nine months or whatever it's been now. Um, uh, we've struggled with what submission to authorities looks like in this current 
COVID situation. Struggled primarily with what it means to be in authority, right? I feel like I'm back in civics class all over again in high school lots of times, right? So if when our, government, when our governor signs an executive order, what does that mean for us as ordinary citizens, right? It's not a law, it's an executive order. You know, has our governor overstepped his constitutionally defined area of authority? If he has, what does that mean for our response as believers? We've been wrestling through this as elders. You know, it started way back. I think we're, we're still in the, in the same spot. You know, we, we, we want to avoid quarreling. We want to show courtesy, like Paul says. We want to be respectful of authorities. Uh, and, and yet still recognize that authority does have limits according to our own governmental documents. You know, how do we, how do we navigate those waters? And, and, you know, we're striving as elders throughout this whole thing. I, I, I have sensed that, that we're striving to maintain openness regarding our response. And, and as we sense God moving us in a different direction, I, I think we'll strive to follow in faithfulness in that direction. Uh, We've got a meeting tomorrow night, and you know who knows how, how the conversation will go from there. But you know, as I've said, this is, this is a tougher one for me. I, I feel like I'm continuing to wrestle with this. It, it, it may be something that, and I don't just want to make this a cop out, but but it may be something that requires hindsight and and distance from the situation in order to to truly have a clearer understanding of it all. Um, but, but regardless, the premise still has to be what Paul has laid out here. The premise still has to be displaying the gospel through our good works. We can't lose sight of that. We, we have to strive to continue to do that. And if we come out of this whole COVID thing, and, and I have faith we will come out of this whole COVID thing eventually, if we come out of it and, and we realize that we didn't do that quite like we should have, then then, then we should repent and, and we should kind of recenter and continue to, to seek God's leading through it all. So you can continue to pray for us as elders as we, as we navigate these waters. You know, this morning, uh, as we think about communion this morning, you know, what we have on the table before us is a visual representation of of God's grace in our lives. We've talked about how our good works are a visual representation of that. This is a visual representation as well. Jesus' sacrifice of himself on the cross, again, it was not the result of works done by us in righteousness. It's, it's the result of his own mercy and his own grace poured out upon us in our lives. And if we truly receive that work of God in our lives, then, then we'll find ourselves being transformed. It's not the bread or the juice here that transforms us. That's symbolic of Christ's transformation within us. And as we receive that, we're gonna find ourselves not just being transformed and filled within, but overflowing as well. It, it's just the natural outcome, overflowing in grace and mercy towards others. So let's keep that in mind as we participate this morning. The elders will come forward, and, um, and I think, Kay, you're playing the piano, right? I never asked you, so I'm glad you're on the ball. But let's, uh, let's keep that in mind as, uh, as we participate in communion together this morning. <laughs>